Okay, our Bible reading is from Hebrews um, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For in which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you alone above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also said, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you will remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits? sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It's great to see you all here. My name is Tim. Uh, I'm the pastor here at New Life. Wonderful to see so many uh, of you that I haven't met uh, before as well. Uh, It's a great week to join us. We're starting a new series together in the book of Hebrews uh, that'll go through this term and a little bit into uh, term two as well. Uh, So let's pray as we get started. Our gracious God and Father, speak to us this morning through your word. Uh, Speak to transform us, uh, to make us more like our Saviour and Lord our King, Jesus Christ. Enable us, Lord, to 
be strengthened in our resolve uh, to press on in following Him uh, and to press on in uh, committing uh, to a life of following Him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Have you ever found yourself drifting, maybe while fishing? I remember being out in the tinny once with my brother fishing and, you know, we put the anchor down but the anchor didn't hold and next minute we drifted into the channel, not where we'd planned to be. Or have you had that experience at the beach where you're swimming between the flags but then you look up and you see yourself either outside the flags or further out to sea than you expected? Or have you drifted away from a friend? Someone you used to be close to, uh, that you spent lots of time with, perhaps, but you spend less time with now because your lives have gone in different directions. Now, the thing about drifting is the place you end up in is not one that you've consciously chosen. So drifting can be dangerous because you might not even know it's happening. And that's why the book of Hebrews is such an important book of the Bible. It was written to people who'd been Christians for a while, but they were beginning to drift. Drift away from their commitment to Jesus and drift away from their commitment to one another. They were drifting, perhaps unaware of what was really happening that they were in danger of turning away from the living God. Now, we too can easily drift from the faith. We too can end up in a different place from where we started and not really be sure about how we ended up there. Last year at youth, I asked the youth what might put them in danger of drifting from Jesus. And I loved their answers because their answers were honest and real. There's a list of their answers uh, on the whiteboard that I wrote down. Friends that are anti-God, unanswered prayers, the Bible not making sense, science, stress, fear, anxiety, other opinions, doubt, outside influence, or just laziness. Can you relate to any of those? Can you relate to any of those dangers? Is there anything you would add to that list? Now, the wonderful thing about Hebrews is that it was written so that we would stop drifting, if that is indeed what we're doing, that that we'd stop drifting and press on. The author of Hebrews, who we don't know exactly who it is, describes the book in chapter 13, verse 22, as a word of exhortation. You know, it, it, it reads kind of like a letter, but it's not exactly the same as the rest of the letters uh, in the New Testament. It has, it has that, that imperative to it, that command, that exhortation. So there's lots of things that we'll read in Hebrews, lots of commands that urge us to keep going. But the call to press on in Hebrews, it's not just a warm hug, nor is it just self-help that says, pull up your bootstraps. 
It's a call that gets its strength and vibrancy from the character of the living God. It's a call that gets its strength and vibrancy from the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, our mediator, the one who gives us the understanding, the motivation, and the power to change. So it's no surprise then that this word of exhortation begins with Him, the majestic Son in all His glory. All the way through chapter 1, the Son's greatness is front and centre, isn't it? And it's because if you're going to press on in the faith, if you're going to keep going, you need your focus on the one that your faith is in, don't you? The majestic Son, who the author identifies as one, God's final word, and two, God's universal ruler. Uh, So we'll start with God's final word. If you're not already there, open up to the beginning of Hebrews. Verses will come up on the screen, but it's better to have your Bibles open if you've got them here. Uh, At Hebrews chapter 1, and look with me there at verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. God has spoken. Just dwell on that for a moment. Just think about that. The God of heaven and earth, the great and mighty God, has come down to our level and spoken to us. He's graciously revealed himself by speaking. And and he hasn't been stingy in what he's communicated, has he? The Old Testament makes up a fair bit of this book, doesn't it? The Old Testament bears witness to God's speech. It is God's speech. God spoke clearly to his people, Israel, as it says, in many times and in many ways. But for all that speaking in the past, there came a time when God communicated differently. It's there in verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. This verse introduces us to a new time period, doesn't it? Called these last days. It's the span of time beginning with the coming of God's Son, Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again as the King of a new age. That span of time stretched to the writer's day who wrote Hebrews and it has continued up to our day. We too are living in the last days of the Son, And we will continue to, until he returns. So the last days are the time period between Jesus' first and second coming. And it's in these last days that God has finally and definitively spoken by his Son. Can you see the big contrast there? God did speak in many times and in many many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken in one definitive way, by his Son. The Son is not just an alternative method of God's communication. He's God's final word. And so right at the beginning of Hebrews, we're seeing how important it will be to listen, aren't we? Listen to how God speaks through his Son, Jesus 
listen to what God reveals in His Son. Knowing what God has spoken through Jesus, it's not only the key to beginning in the faith, it's the key to continuing in the faith as well. It's the key to pressing on in the faith. So Hebrews is a book about Jesus. Surprise, surprise. And the writer gives us seven facts that show us why. Seven truths that confirm why he is indeed God's final word. We'll take the first two together. He's the heir of all things and the universe was made through him. Do you see his relationship to the world? The son is the heir of everything. I belong to him, you belong to him, everything in creation belongs to him. It's his inheritance. Why? It's because he made it. The world was created through him. And that's a big part of why it belongs to him. Everything is his by right. But there's more to it than that. If you look at verse 3, he's also the radiance of God's glory. All God's greatness and majesty shines through his Son. He's the exact representation of his being. That is, the Son is uniquely qualified to reveal the Father because he's the exact imprint of his nature. It's kind of saying that there's, there's no private side of God hidden behind a public side in Christ. When we see what the Son is like, we see what God is like. The true and full character of God is made clear to us in Jesus. The fifth thing, he sustains all things by his powerful word. When we think of power, we don't often think of words, do we? It's not our idea of flexing. And yet the Son carries forward God's purposes for creation with his mighty creative word. But as well as the Son's cosmic and creative work, there's His personal work in history, isn't there? His redemptive work. And so we read in the second part of verse 3, the sixth thing. He made purification for sins. That's what the priests did. The Old Testament priests in the temple, they, they sacrificed animals and that showed that we have a problem, a problem with sin, that purification was needed. Well, right here in the intro of Hebrews, we're introduced to the better priest who himself was the sacrifice. A sacrifice that achieved lasting forgiveness for his people. More of that to come in the book of Hebrews. Well, finally, after he made purification for sins, we're told he sat down at the right hand of God. But but why are we told this weird detail about Jesus' posture? You know, we're all sitting here this morning. I haven't, I haven't made a big song and dance about it. Uh, Simon didn't make a big song and dance about everyone sitting either. So why are we told that Jesus sat down here? Why are we told about his posture? Well, there's two reasons, I think, and both of them will be unpacked later in the book. But briefly, the first one, the first reason why Jesus sat, has to do with that priestly work of purification. The priest, 
in the Old Testament. He didn't sit down in the most holy place of the temple. He wasn't allowed to sit down until, that is, he finished the job. A seated priest means the sacrifice is complete. The work is done. And so this is signalling to us, right up front in Hebrews, that purification has been achieved by Jesus. But where Jesus has sat down is also important. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He's seated on the heavenly throne as God's powerful right-hand man. Jesus is seated right now as the world ruler who rules at God's command. Something that we can easily lose sight of in our day-to-day, in the day-to-day grind of life, can't we? Hebrews is going to teach us lots more about why this is significant, so, so stay tuned in the coming weeks. But I hope you've seen already that Hebrews holds Jesus in the highest regard, doesn't it? I hope your attention has been drawn to His majesty as, his, as God's final word. What we have here is rich, rich in theology, rich theology that's, that's worth contemplating deeply. But I wonder, if you're the kind of person who's more of a doer than a thinker, perhaps, if you listen to sermons more for application on what to go out and do this week than anything else, you might be getting a bit tetchy at this point, perhaps. Don't get me wrong, practical action is important and great. The Scriptures ought to change us and and transform our actions in real concrete ways. But focusing on the practical while neglecting the theological is a mistake. Because it's not just our actions that need to change, is it? So do our hearts. So do our minds if we're to live lives that please God in a world that opposes Him. See, we live in a world that says there's no such thing as divine speech or divine revelation. We live in a world that says there's no God standing above or outside of nature. There's no unseen realm, if you like. However, Hebrews boldly proclaims Christ as God's final word. Which of these truths about Jesus can you be intentional about reflecting on deeply this week? That you can be praying that God would use to transform not only your actions, but your hearts and minds as well. Which of these truths can you be intentional about reflecting on to remind you of the one who stands above the natural processes of this world? since he created them and rules over all. And it's the son's rule that the author of Hebrews goes on to make even clearer in the next section. He identifies Jesus as God's final word. Next, we see how he's displayed as God's universal ruler over all. And he does that with a comparison. Look at verse 4. Because Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God... So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. In a nutshell, Jesus 
is greater than the angels. This word greater will be picked up many times through Hebrews. Sometimes it'll say uh, superior, sometimes, like it does here. Sometimes it'll say better, but it's the same word. Jesus is better. But what's the go with the angels, right? We have all kinds of ideas about angels from what we read or what we watch or from New Age religion even, perhaps. Uh, But I don't know about you, I tend to think about angels as floating in the sky with wings. But that image comes more from Roman pagan religion and depictions of the goddess of victory, Nike, than it does from the Bible. It's a reminder that we need to keep coming back to God's Word for our true understanding of all things, including angels. So looking at the rest of Hebrews 1 now, what is the go with the angels? Why does the author of Hebrews suddenly want to contrast Jesus with the angels as the first topic of his teaching? Why this topic up front? Well, to crack this question, we need to pay attention to how the author uses the Old Testament. He quotes seven Old Testament passages. We had seven things about Jesus before here. We got seven Old Testament passages as evidence for why the Son is greater than the angels. The first two quotes are about sonship. Look with me at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be to me and he will be my son. These two quotes are from two of the purple passages of the Old Testament. Passages that when I came across for the first time while I was at uni studying the Bible in fellowship, completely changed the way I understood how God's revealed Himself to us. The first one's from Psalm 2, the second is from 2 Samuel 7. Starting with Psalm 2, every single Jew would have known it by heart. Okay? Psalm 2 was to the Jewish nation what God saved the King is to the English, roughly. It was the national song. It was a majestic song, a royal song, the coronation song of Israel's, about Israel's monarch, God's chosen king. And God's king inherited that, that really special title, son, or in its fullest form, son of God. It meant that he represented all God's people and as he stepped up to lead God's people the king kind of takes on that title representing the whole people. So we have this king who is called Son of God. It's huge, isn't it? Huge title, an enormous title. And when we read it in the Scriptures, it's not automatically referring to Jesus' divinity, although it is as well, as we'll see. But of course, the Old Testament kings never really live up to that title, only Jesus does. Jesus comes and fulfills that title as it should be in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Now, the second quote is from 2 Samuel 7. 
It comes at a time in Israel's history when King David is at the peak of his powers and he sits down one day in his palace and he thinks to himself, I've got this massive palace and God still dwells in the tent that we carry around. What's the go with that? It's not fitting. And so he plans to build God a house, a permanent dwelling. But God says, no, you don't build me a house. In fact, your son will build the temple. But I'm going to build a house for you. And so God promises David a dynasty. A dynasty that, where one of his descendants will rule, rule forever. His rule would be eternal and established forever. That's the promise of 2 Samuel 7. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's picking up these two incredible passages about kingship and applies them to Jesus. To which of the angels did God ever give these kingship promises? And of course, the answer is none. There's only one man that can truly wear quotes like this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God's chosen King. That's the contrast between the Son and the angels. But then verse 6 spells out the, the contrast even more. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says... Let all the angels worship him. (laughs) Do you see the contrast there? It's the contrast between worshippers on the one hand and the worshipped one on the other hand, isn't it? That's the nature of what we're talking about here. And the writer keeps labouring the point with more quotes, comparing the sun to created things. Did you notice how the angels are described in verse 7? Spirits and flames, or winds and flames. The point is, they're transient. They're ephemeral, they're they're changing, and they're only messengers of God. The sun is far more than just transient and changing. The sun is far more than just a messenger. You see that in verse 8, but about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And I'll keep reading. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. In contrast to the angels, the son and his rule is permanent and unchanging. That's the big distinction between the angels as created and the Son as created, as creator. Continuing to speak about the Son, verse 12 says, But you remain the same, and your years will never end. I think we all hope for something permanent in life. We all look for something that lasts, don't we? Something to pin our lives on, something that will keep us firm and secure. Well, what this is teaching us is that we won't find it in created things. Everything has an expiry date in this world, including the world itself. Our hope of something permanent is only realised in the one who's been declared God's forever king. Our hope for the future is in the permanent kingdom of the permanent son. Is that where your hope is? 
Well, we've worked pretty hard there uh, in the first three verses and then from verse four onwards. We've worked hard getting this picture of the majestic sun, the sun who is greater than the angels. But there's one more quote worth looking at before we move on. And it's introduced in the same way that the first quote is, and it expects the same answer. A quote from Psalm 110, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? All of these statements about Jesus the King, the Son, are reserved for Him. The Son is God's universal ruler. He rules over all the earth. He rules over all creation. And angels are described as His servants. Servants serving for the sake of people like you and me, that we might find salvation. And it's this salvation that the author of Hebrews now zones in on. So great a salvation that we ignore it at our peril. See, if the Son is God's final word, if the Son is God's universal ruler, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment... How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now why has the writer been building this contrast in chapter 1 between the sun and angels? It's the importance of their communication, isn't it? See, the people of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, believed that God gave them their scriptures mediated through angels. But in these last days, he's spoken by his son. And so this contrast sparks the warning here. The warning in verse 3, that if the Israelites didn't escape when they ignored the law given through angels... How shall we escape God's judgment if we ignore the message spoken by the Son, who is so much better and is God's final word? This is the message that the Old Testament people could only dream of hearing, that God would send His great Son, His King, Jesus, and that King would give His life for a people who'd rebelled against Him, people like you and I. So great a salvation we have. And we have it through faith, trusting in God's Son. And so the wise thing to do is to listen carefully, to heed the warning, to listen carefully to the message of the King and receive His wonderful, lasting salvation that our lives can be secure in. This is the first of many warnings in Hebrews. And sometimes 
Sometimes they might worry us. Sometimes they might scare us. But I want us to learn to love them this, through this series. I want us to, to be able to see that, that they're there for our good. God has been so gracious to us in giving us these warnings. He actually uses them to help us to persevere and to press on and to keep going in the faith. They're not here to trip us up. They're here to help us press on. Because they keep pointing us in the right direction, don't they? The call here to pay the most careful attention is a call to stay on course. It's the opposite of drifting away. Careful listening is called for. Not the kind of listening that you might do on a plane. You know when you get on a plane and you're flying somewhere and the cabin crew start say, you know, listen carefully and they give you all that stuff about, see, I don't even know what it is because I don't listen carefully. Just because we get lots of warnings in Hebrews, let's not be dull to them. Let's not listen carelessly. Let's listen carefully. Careful listening to the message that we've already heard is what we need. That's what we need to devote ourselves to. You know, we don't need the novel or the new to press on as Christians. We need to hear the same message again and again and again. The basic teaching of Christ that we're called to obey. If we fail to listen, if we neglect what we've heard, we'll find ourselves living day by day as if God's never spoken. It's not like we'll give up the faith straight away. Not many people who follow Jesus wake up one morning and say, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to stop following Jesus right now, I'm going to give up. It's not how it happens, is it? It doesn't happen that way. It happens subtly over a long period of time. Slowly drifting, usually not through big decisions to start with, but through little decisions, countless little decisions decisions that take us away from Jesus. So if you don't want to drift, pay close attention to the message spoken by the Son. Dwell richly on who He is and what He's done. Let the King's words shape your life, shape your priorities, shape every decision, even the little ones. And if you're younger here, if you're in high school uh, or at uni or even younger perhaps, if you're younger here this morning, it's the, while you're young is the best time of your life to grow deep roots into Jesus. So don't waste those years. Growing roots into the foundation of your faith will enable you to press on for the rest of your life. But if you are older, perhaps you need to fertilize uh, those roots. Perhaps you need to water the plant of your life. Invest, invest in 
growing as a believer in fellowship with your brothers and sisters here at New Life in, in, in the different ways that God has provided for us to do that. Salvation in Jesus is so good, so good and, and we're going to see that in Hebrews, it's, it's so clear, it's so good and my prayer is that as we see that, we won't just reluctantly keep going but we'll embrace the call to press on in Him, knowing how good He is and how awesome He is. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, may we heed your warning this morning to pay careful attention to what we've heard in Jesus. Enable us to press on and persevere. Give us assurance of salvation in Jesus. Remind us this term of how awesome he is. Your final word your universal ruler, the one who we serve, who is now seated at your right hand, ruling over all creation. Lord, help us to love Jesus, to love your salvation in him and to persevere following him, pressing on in the faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to keep reflecting on these truths that we've heard this morning and proclaiming them as well in song. And so let's stand and sing together.